Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Suki, author of the novel Love Marriage. And as this podcast's resident Minnesotan, I am proud to say that this special episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast is presented in conjunction with the Locked Literary Center's Literary Festival, Wordplay, which this year, for obvious reasons, is going virtual. What a great festival. We were lucky to be in, I think, like the first ever last year. Yeah, it was awesome. I am a huge fan of Minnesota, especially since this week, my governor in Missouri decided to cut millions of dollars from my university's budget and the budget of all the other universities in the state so we can put together a pandemic response fund. Not that I think pandemic responses are bad, but the only reason we need a fund is that the president has totally blown the nation's pandemic response. And our governor's response so far seems to be like last in, in declaring stay-at-home orders, and that's about it. So I'm not sure why it needs to be so expensive. Well, I can tell you a story or two about the president telling bananas MAGA hat protesters that Minnesota needs to be liberated from the exact same rules that the president himself drew up. And I personally only need to be liberated from these idiots. Um, so what do you do? I don't, there's nothing. It's so horrible. You're stuck at home. These ridiculous things are occurring. You can't do anything about it. What I did was I talked to the Finsters on do I, Zoom. Do I want to know who the Finsters are? The Finsters are my friends. The name comes, comes from an old Bugs Bunny cartoon. All of us are called Finster. There's my college roommates, Chris and Pierre, and also our friend Aria. We, we all lived on the same hall freshman year. Uh, they are the Finsters. They're the people you speak a secret language with. Do you have any Finsters in your life? Oh, I do have Finsters, it turns out. I didn't know. I've got Finsters. <laughs> but tell me about your Finsters. I mean, they're the most important thing outside of my family. You know, we all, we're all from totally different places. There's no reason why you would think that we would be friends. Pierre's part Haitian. He's a surgeon. He grew up in Baltimore. Chris is this volleyball player and early music singer from Muncie. There's a whole bunch of those. That's totally normal. Aria is a lawyer who grew up as the brainiac black girl in a very white upstate New York town. But I feel this like incredible, powerful, and almost inexpressible connection to them. And we've been friends now for, I don't know, 35 years. And that's what, you know, uh, and when I die, I know they're, they're going to be there. So in that case, you're going to be very excited along with our audience to talk to our guest for this episode, Dinez Smith, whose most recent collection of poetry, Homie, is all about friendship. The names we give our friends, including the real name of this book, which is not Homie, and specifically friendship between Black people. As we mentioned earlier, Dinez is joining us in conjunction with the Loft Literary Center's Literary Festival, Wordplay. Along with Homie, Dinez is the author of the poetry collection, Don't Call Us Dead, which won the Forward Prize for Best Collection and was a finalist for the National Book Award, and the collection Insert Boy, which won the Kate Tufts Discovery Award and the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Poetry. They are the recipient of fellowships from the Poetry Foundation, the McKnight Foundation, the Montalvo Arts Center, Cave Canem, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Their work has been featured in BuzzFeed, The New York Times, PBS NewsHour, and Best American Poetry. Dinez is a member of the Dark Noise Collective and co-hosts the VS podcast with Franny Choi. Dinez, welcome to the show. Oh, hold on one second, and now I'm welcome. Hello, how are y'all doing? Sorry, my partner just got <laughs> home. <laughs> I making noise. Uh, I'm good, how are y'all doing? Thank y'all for having me. That's our best ever podcast entrance, so it's a good start. <laughs> I couldn't help but say, you've got a language sprout behind you. That's kind of awesome. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Language? My a language sprout is the company my partner works for. 
um, and makes videos for during the week in in the bed uh, in our bedroom, making uh, he's teaching Spanish and English to the kitties. So. Ah, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so Wynn and I were just talking about how we've been keeping up with our friends and during quarantine and wondering how you're keeping up with yours. Um, you know, I think it's kind of been easy. Um, I feel like uh, like the digital waves are like already such a part of friendship for me. Um, and just in keeping contact with folks, especially like I have a lot of friends that don't live, you know, close enough that I can see them all the time anyway. So um, in some ways, friendship kind of feels uninterrupted in a couple of ways. And I'm still like, you know, dropping stuff off when people need it and maybe getting to see them in brief moments in that way. Uh, but FaceTime is real. Group chats are thriving. Uh, text messages are free. So are phone calls on weekends. Um, so yeah, so I've been kind of keeping in contact with the homies just fine. There's a line I really liked among many lines I liked from your poem, how many of us have them? You write, uh, Andrew used to say, friendship is so friendship, <laughs> ain't it? And that line sort of gets to this unspeakable part of what friendship is, at least mm-hmm. for me in a lot of ways, you know, what it means and how it's defined. And because in real life, it like isn't defined. I mean, part of the thing about friendship is that you, it's like a, you know it when you have it, mm-hmm. but you don't often say what it is, you know? Um, and so what made you decide to write poetry about this sort of unspeakable thing and, and how would you define it? Um, I don't think it's really a deciding factor, you know, uh, for me, poems and books sort of happen uh, just through letting the mind and the work wander. Um, and I guess at some point it becomes intentional, but I guess a lot of these poems, I didn't necessarily know I was like trying to write off friendship. You know, you just like write a poem um, because what's on your, it's what's on your heart, it's what's on your mind, it's what brings you um joy or play for that day um or peace for that day and by the time i looked up i just had a bunch of work that was about friendship uh and i think it it makes sense that i was attracted to it um my friends have just been a really big part of my life um especially in my 20s and as i you know moved farther away from my family and i really didn't find myself in that many uh long romantic relationships um i'm serially single or at least i was for a long time so friends were a big part of how love happened in my life Mm. um and i think love is one of those natural things that we write about when we turn to poetry and so um you know love uh what it means to be a human death and what it means to be amongst other humans and so uh all those things i guess some of when I think about them, my friend, friends' names come to mind, whether in joy or in sorrow. And so um, I guess it kind of felt natural or uh, not, not, like an, not like a choice, but it felt like if I was to evidence my life in this work, um, if I'm going to like confess about something, then I guess friends might as well be it. Sugi, did yes. you get a journalism degree? Do you feel like these are, like, was it worthwhile? Was it good? I didn't get one, but I was a journalist. Yeah, um, I did get one. I'd been working as a journalist for a while, and I got an MA in journalism after that. And it was really helpful in ways that I didn't expect and found really rewarding, including in my career, weirdly, as a fiction writer. Yeah? I mean, if there was a thing that I would go back and do again, I think that I would I would get a journalist. I, like, I can't. Journalism degrees and, and programs and we're here to talk about the University of Colorado's Master of Arts in Journalism Entrepreneurship. I mean, journalism programs, first of all, are so amazingly cool and interesting and like 
give you this opportunity to have a career in journalism that, you know, you might not otherwise find, you know? Yeah. And so the University of Colorado's Master of Arts in Journalism Entrepreneurship is an online professional degree program that is the kind of program that can ready you to be a journalism professional in today's media landscape, which, as we know, is changing every second. So this program is designed for students with a range of professional experience, and it gives you the building blocks to launch or advance your journalistic career. And as someone who's had a journalistic career, it is an amazing career. You can learn more by visiting ce.colorado.edu slash tell the story. Again, that's ce.colorado.edu slash tell the story to figure out your future in journalism. I was trying to think of, you know, I mean, there are obviously tons of poems about love and friendship is about love, but I was trying to think of poets that I thought, I can think of a lot of fiction writers, probably because I'm a fiction writer who write about friendship, but I was trying to think, I mean, there's Whitman is obviously great on friendship. Who are other like great poets on friendship in your opinion? Or Sugi, if you have poets on friendship that you really like. Oh, I love Ross Gay um, and how he just like sees people. um, And maybe it's not always friends. I think like, it's like intimacy, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Or who, or even, you know, you expand that word of what a friend is. I think about his poem, um, Feet, or his poem, Spoon, from uh, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. Um, I really love um, one of my friends, uh, Human Win, um, and how he writes about friendship. I think he's really genius at it. June Jordan um, is somebody who I've been reading a lot of hers in the quarantine. And she's always writing poems for other people, people that she loved, people that raised her, people that studied her. Um, She has a poem for Fannie Lou Hamer uh, that I love so much. And I've been returning to it um, for the last couple of weeks. And so, you know, I I guess, yeah, it's like, they're always there. It's just like, who who do poets name their poems after? You got to look at those dedications. Frank O'Hara, I guess, is somebody who I also Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, another one of my friends, um, I love, Angel Nafis, um, mm. she's a, uh, yeah, a writer, um, a, a peer and a writer and a love. And she just writes so gorgeous, gorgeous portraits um, of the people, the many people that make up her heart and her life. Yeah. Those are some great names. And there are names in your work. And one of my favorite poems among yours is the first one in Homie. Um, which, you know, just revisiting it now as the pandemic continues and our president reveals himself as like not only a national fla- failure, but just a massive global one. Um, <laughs> I felt like reading that poem felt like some sort of counterspell to him. Um, mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you would read that poem for us. Yep, yeah, for sure. All right. My president, today I elect Jonathan, 11 and already making roads out of water, young genius, blog writer, little community activist, curls tight as pinky swears, black as my nation. I trust the world in his tender, blooming hands. I trust him to tell us which rivers are safe to drink and which hold fish like a promise. And I elect Eve Ewing, who I know would misfrizzle the country into one big classroom where grandmas finger paint the national budget and uncles stand around smoking blacks, plotting on stars for our escape. She could walk to the podium at her inauguration and say, the future is now. And we would all marvel at the sun and moon looping the sky like a gif as the cars all learned to fly and our skin grew bulletproof. And Colin Kaepernick is my president 
who kneels on the air, bent toward a branch, throwing apples down to the children and vets. And Rihanna is my president, walking out of global summits with a wine glass in hand, our taxes returned in gold to dust our faces into coins. And my mama is my president, her grace stunts on amazing brown hands, breaking brown bread over mouths of the hungry until there are none unfed. And my grandma is my president, and her cabinet is her cabinet, because she knows to trust what the pan knows, how the skillet wins the war. And the man I saw high kicking his way down the river, he is my president. And the trans girl making songs in her closet, spinning the dark into a booming dress. She too is my president. And Shonda Rhimes is my president. And Nate Marshall is my president. And Trina is my president. And the boys outside Walgreens selling candy for a possibly fictional basketball team. They are my presidents. And the bus driver who stops after you yell, wait, only twice is my prez. And dude at the pizza spot who will give you a free slice if you are down to wait for him to finish the day's fourth prayer is my president and my auntie only a few months clean but clean she is my president and my neighbor who holds the door open when my arms are full of laundry is my president and every head nod is my president and every child singing summer with a red sweet tongue is my president and the birds and the cooks and the single moms especially and the weed dealers and the teachers and the meter maids who let you slide and the cab driver who stops and the nurses swollen feet and the braiders exhausted hands and the bartender and Beyonce and all her her kids and the rabbi and the sad girls and the leather daddy who always stops to say good morning and the boy crying on the train and the sudden abuela who rubs his back and the uncle who offers him water and the drag queen who begins to hum oh my presidents my presidents my presidents my presidents show me to our nation my only border is my body i sing your names sing your names your names my mighty anthem. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Colin Kaepernick was our was the subject of our very first episode. So, oh really? We'll, oh, we'll vote yeah. him president too for the show. <laughs> Dope. I, I think that. I bought some of those uh, some of that candy for those fictional basketball. Teams. You know, sometimes <laughs> you break down and you buy the candy. You know, I always buy the candy. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I, I you got to barter with them kids. I'm like, I know why you out here, and there's there's no reason this Kit Kat needs to be poured out. So let's talk. <laughs> Uh, the directive of your previous book's title, Don't Call Us Dead, can be aimed as, mm. it can be read as being aimed at a non-Black audience, but Homie addresses Black readers, Black friends, celebrates Black friendship, is particularly moving and painful to read, knowing the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on families of color, friends, and communities, you know, it's, and also this coronavirus thing is a lonely disease. As many people point out, you end up, if you're dying from it, you have to be alone. The measures to get rid of it involve us not being physically together. I wondered if you could talk about how it's affecting the friendships and communities that you write about in, homie. Uh, I don't know, I lost a cousin to COVID. Um, I have other family members who are sick. Um, and I mean, you know, it's harder. It, it does, it, it, I think COVID, uh, forces us to not act how we know how to act, which is to reach out, to touch, to commune, to do all those things, right? And so it feels very 
um, the medicine for it, or I guess the, the measures for it feels very anti-human or, or just the opposite of who we are. Um, so like the opposite of poetry, I think, you know, it's just like poetry is about speaking like little and bridges. that's the thing yeah. you're not supposed to do. You can't, you yeah. know, like wearing a mask is not what you do with poetry. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. It's about connection and that's exactly what is dangerous right now. It hurts black people more because, uh, I mean, it hurts poor people more, right? We're talking, you know, I think about the, the people working at grocery stores, people, gig workers working for Instacart delivery folks, um, who are going through it. Um, when we are in the hospital, um, right, black folks are just believed less in the medical system. Um, our pain is not real, particularly when a black woman says she's in pain in the hospital, does anybody hear it? I mean, like anything, in America, uh, if it hits us, I mean, it'll probably hit black people hard. So uh, I don't know, it's, this, it's the same script, new drama, so. I'm so sorry about your cousin. Um, no, okay. Just thinking about the sort of solidarity that was useful, I was thinking about your poem, What Was Said at the Bus Stop, which has this great scene in it, this great conversation that I love so much. And it suggests also really complex things about solidarity and the usefulness and also inadequacy of comparison as a connection between communities of color. And I just was thinking about, I mean, not just the pandemic, but all sorts of things where people compare, oh, I understand because of X and Y. Um, and, it, and it really isn't the same, even though it, it might provide a little bit of a bridge, but it doesn't, the bridge doesn't quite touch um, mm -hmm. somehow. And I wondered if you would read that poem for us. Yeah, we'll happily do. All right, uh, what was said on the bus stop? Lately has been a long time says the girl from Pakistan, Lahore to be specific, at the bus stop when the white man asks her where she's from and then says, oh, you from Lahore? Pretty bad over there lately. Lately has been a long time, she says, and we look at each other and the look says, yes, I too wish do would stop asking us about where we're from, but on the other side of our side eyes, there was maybe a hand where hands do no good, a look that says, yes, I know lately has been a long time for your people too, and I'm sorry the world is so good at making us feel like we have to fight for space to fight for our lives. Solidarity is a word. A lot of people say it. I'm not sure what it means in the flesh. I know I love and have cried for my friends. Their brown's a different brown from mine. I've danced their dances when taught and tasted how their mother's miracle the rice, different from mine. I know sometimes I can't see beyond my own pain past black and white, how bullets love any flesh. I know it's foolish to compare. What advice do the drowned have for the burned? What gossip is there between the hanged and the buried? And I want to reach across our great distance that is sometimes an ocean and sometimes centimeters and say, look, your people, my people, all that has happened to us and still make love under rusted moons, still pull children from mothers and name them, still teach them to dance. And your pain is not mine and is no less and is mine. And I pray to my God, your God blesses you with mercy. And I have tasted your food and understand how it is a good home. And I don't know your language, but I understand your songs. And I cried when they came for your uncles. And when you buried your niece, I wanted the world to burn in the child's brief memory and still, 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 still stood. And I have stood by you in the soft shawl of mourning, waiting and breathing and waiting.
Thank you. I love the that poem so is much. about waiting on the mega bus really early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> what stop? Uh, the Ann Arbor stop, trying to get the hell out of there and go someplace for a show, probably. And it was far too early for some white man to be asking us, us questions. And when I woke up on the other side of a nap, I wrote this poem. <laughs> um, that conversation, I feel like I can see that scene so clearly and perhaps have been in that scene. I'm not really sure, um, probably. And there's that line about comparison being foolish. And then all of those great comparisons um, reaching and failing in that uh, penultimate stanza. What role does comparison play in your thinking about art? I mean, I think it's like how we learn to do things, right? That's how we like teach. It's like fundamental to everything, I think. Like how we teach is by comparison, which one of these things is bigger. It's how you understand the concept of bigger and stuff like that. And it's how we write poems too. Um, we wouldn't have the metaphor if it wasn't for the basic function of comparison to hold two things by each other and say, how are these different? And let me show you how similar they are, if you didn't think. Um, that's like half of the trick of being a writer, especially being a poet, I think, um, is to sort of, you know, take something complex and show how it's been the same as us or been the same as the birds all along. So I think, yeah, comparison is, I think, sort of unavoidable when it comes to art. In that poem, as you're talking about on the artistic side, so Sui, I, I was surprised when you said you felt like there, that the bridge wasn't made between the speaker and the woman in the, on the bus, because I feel like that is built in, in, like it does happen in the poem. Like, look, these things are different. I understand I don't have exactly your experience, but there is, I don't know. I mean, we have the poet here. Maybe the poet can tell us what they thought about it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if the bridge, I think that's kind of, maybe that's nice. I think that's a nice attempt, but uh, I don't think the poem is uh, about that actual connection because really the only moments we connect is like looking at each other. Um, and then I just do my poet thing and just talk too much in my own head. Um, and so, and so I don't know if the, right. I think the poem just uses that one moment of a, so, a sort of maybe uh, unclear connection of like, you know, maybe we are sort of in a sense of oneness right now, or maybe we're just uh, just looking at each other. Um, and it just takes that moment to expound upon my own selfish thinking, um, as most poems do, right? I feel bad for this lady sometimes. I feel bad for anybody I've ever put in a poem. Nobody has to be in a poet's sight. That's awful. Because um, all I do is like take my one side of the experience and try to spin it for my own selfish thinking. I mean, that reminds uh, me, of, think of how many poems though have, have been created just like that by a chance encounter uh, on a bus. I mean, you were mentioning Frank O'Hara, like going out to lunch, you know, or whatever, uh, you know, and now everyone's in their house. Like, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I can't wait for everyone to get out so the poets can get back to work of observing people <laughs> and then writing poems about them. Exactly. I mean, I think people should just start lining up outside of our windows and just let us write about that for a little bit. Every day. Poet viewing. Yeah, just let Over us look at you, see what we can get, <laughs> go on about your business, you know. <laughs> I would volunteer for that. I think it would be it would be so exciting to be in a poem. I don't know, I guess like Dude, people are so bored, they would totally come over to the poet's house. <laughs> See, that's why poem. like poems can be so, they can be so intimate and like a huge gift if you can actually like give somebody a poem, right? And like, I love writing about people that I can actually tell I wrote about them. But there's like, you know, there's this woman in this poem, there's like the poem Rose earlier in the book, like all that is kind of selfish, you know? And I guess like sometimes being a poet feels like a thing of community and sometimes it feels like the most like egotistical, selfish thing in the world that I just get to run back to my notebook with everybody else's stories and what I've made up about them in my head. Um, and I get to look like a great person because I got to, you know, I, I got to be 
you know, uh, I got to write the poem about solidarity and like say all these wonderful things, but like she got shit out the deal. <laughs> we just both left annoyed by this old guy. You have a great poem like that that I want to talk about. We actually have at the end here that we wanted to talk about that's sort of about that same subject, old, old confession and new. Um, mm-hmm. But right now, speaking of comparison, I, I have... I had some important older women in my life, uh, like mm-hmm. a grandmother and a, and a great aunt who was, uh, she was very bookish and huge H.L. Mencken fan for what's that's worth and, and was super helpful to me when I was young. And I wondered if you could read um, from your poem, Happy Hour for us. And we could talk yeah. about that a little bit. Yeah, love that little poem. All right, um, Happy Hour. Grandma say she go into the funeral to see who all there. Like I'd say I'm about to go grab a drink. The woman, not someone she knew too well, but someone of a similar age and blackness, Southern daughter spun north out of promise or terror-toned night who fled into winter to escape the pale rope-skinned good old boys just being boys, but that's not on her mind right now. Just help me get this necklace on, she say, and I latch the gold around her. My grandma, a night sky of moles on her face, dark stars glowing in the honey, a mold per friend, per friend a friend who now feeds the worms and speaks to her through the swell of the tomatoes, the exact yellow of the tulips in the garden, each bloom, a gone love saying hello, just stopping by for a summer and then again come winter, they go to the funeral early and count the living, grandma and her friend, her girl Mary, headed to gather around a body like I sometimes called my play kin to pass a bottle of hen. Mary, whose blacker hair my grandma has surely held back on a sour Friday, who she calls sometimes to sit with nothing to say, just sit on the phone and be alive together for a while. Now in the diamond years of friendship after the children have been born and born their own and some of them have died and the husbands have gone first and another friend and another friend and an old love and alas as the world throttles into what was once imaginary waiting for a God they believed in for decades to show her face, surely their own faces, and hopefully before they find themselves raising a glass in a room of empty glasses, sipping whiskey, no, not whiskey, a glass wet with browner ghost. Drink, you're dead. Get throwed off the leaving, the duty of the last. Thank you. I love that image <laughs> for me. I just very moved by the, those two women sitting on the phone together, not saying anything. There's moments when you think of like, that's, oh, that's a thing that's happening in my city right now. And I don't ever think about it. Most, most people under 70 don't think about it, right? Uh, don't think about the old people that much. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, I just, it was just a moment that I knew was true that that was happening that I don't think about. I mean, I think it's a moment to me that is like what friendship is. Um, I just did a talk, uh, like a little panel talk on friendship the other day with um, a couple other poets, uh, Kaveh Akbar, Nate Marshall, and Clint Smith. And we were talking about how like real friendship sort of gets past that like third thing, you know, like, hey, let's go to the movies. Let's do this. Let's do X, Y, and Z, this activity. Not real friendship, but I think like there's a sweet spot in friendship where you just get to the point where you're just like agree to just be bored together. It's like, hey, just come like sit on the couch and do nothing. Like, you know, like come take a nap near me. Like come like, you know, just do nothing. And I think that's the old lady version of it. You know, my grandma has like a certain, like a group of women that she just calls once a day 
for whatever, you know, just to be like, oh, you know, I, I woke up. All right, I'll talk to you later. You know, like, that's kind of it. You know, it's like, I'm gonna put these beans on. All right, what, what you eating for lunch? You know, and it's just like, that's, that's it. It's nothing. And it's like that sort of kind and needed nothingness, I think is like the best thing about friendship, you know, when it needs no other reason. Um, I mean, the structures that I had for that in my life were I was in a band. So the, the mm -hmm. bandmates that I had, we would just, you know, you're just sitting there with your instruments in somebody's basement really just making up stories and goofing around and half the time you're not practicing and and there's just unstructured time for friendship is really important it's kind of mm -hmm. what friendship's kind of about at least for me yeah yeah it's sad i think we lose it a lot as we get older you know like once you're out of like college or maybe in your early 20s and as you like you know your lives start exploding to like you know spouses and families and kids and stuff like that um i, I really i mean i at least i found myself like mourning the way friendship happened in my early life as I started to like approach 30 and realize like, oh, we all stay in the house a little more, you know? Um, we all have like these other lives and these other relationships that we have to tend to in bigger ways. And I was just like, oh dang, people just don't knock on the door anymore and just like come sit on the couch and like be there for hours doing nothing. In the same way, you know, that happens sometimes, but man, uh, I, I kind of look forward to being old again because I think that it sort of returns to you. That's sort people of, don't even really pick up the phone anymore. You know, people used to pick up the phone without making an appointment. Um, oh and, yeah, right. Like you know, cold calling someone now it's like oh the temerity. Um, and it's interesting like the things that you t are talking about signify comfort. You know, come take a nap next to me. Come sit sit on your couch. You know, come do this nothingness. And when I think about, um, I'm I'm known among a certain set of my friends for falling asleep in inconvenient locations um, <laughs> and like including at parties and um, just like napping for a while and then waking up and being like, Hey, I'm still here. You guys still seem fun. <laughs> and I think to this day, the friends who I like love the most and feel the most comfortable with, including here in the twin cities are people whose parties I fell asleep at earliest, which mm. is so weird because, and they <laughs> were like, that was really at home. <laughs> yeah. That's what, that's what they said. They were like, we, we, you know, we're honored that you feel cozy here. And I was like, I'm also just a really tired person. But uh, I mean, I think that sense of intimacy or like vulnerability is one that is rarer and rarer. And I think it's also something capitalism is snatching away from us, right? As our time becomes, mm so structured you know you've got to account for every minute and so the space to mess around or be bored is so precious and and vanishing and the, the space that you're talking about also seems like a porous border almost between like really good friendship and family hmm. right um like yeah. that notion of chosen family that i think mm -hmm. is becoming so important to a lot of people i mean i, I my friends you know i and i mentioned at the top of the podcast that we are my friends call each other by the same name. We all call each other Finster, which is from a Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> it's the name of a bank robber. There's a little bank robber and Bugs Bunny takes him in and calls him baby Finster when he figures out that he's really a bank robber. Oh, um, wow. Okay. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great Bugs Bunny cartoon. But otherwise I don't, they're not, they don't live in my same city anymore. And so in a weird way, you know, like I have a 10 year old and like, and a 14 year old. And those are the people that I now I'm sort of friends with. I mean, that's who we watch, you know, a movie just hanging out or we throw the ball in the backyard or we make up a game with Hot Wheels or whatever. I mean, that's, that's precious to me when they're gone. I don't know what's going to happen. I get really nervous. 
I mean, yeah. I mean, everybody sort of becomes your, right? Your parents are kind of your first friends too. I mean, hopefully if you have good relationships with them, but um, I remember my mom was kind of my first friend and I still in like now, thank God on the other side of like adolescence, we're friends again. Um, it's like, that's like legit my like homegirl. I love my mom in that way. And even being in quarantine with my partner, um, we didn't live together before this. We chose to just sort of, we knew we were gonna have to be inside for a long time to do it together. And even the other day I looked up at them and I said, oh dear God, I'm glad we're friends. Like, um, like that I just don't think you're cute. Like, you know, like, <laughs> because we have to sort of fulfill that role for each other now um, in this sort of, you know, covid newness. It'd be horrible if we were just lovers or just partners in that way. I'm like, yeah, we kind of, we have to be buddies. And I think it's made our, the friendship side of our friendship, of our relationship a lot stronger. Yeah, you find friends everywhere. My grandma is my friend. That's why I wrote that poem about her. She's not just my grandma. That's like, you know, that's my little lady, so. <laughs> So, Denez, I want to jump from this to asking you just craft questions because I'm so curious. I sometimes get asked by readers or students about space in my own work, which is prose. Mm -hmm. And I honestly don't know sometimes why I'm doing it and how I think about space. And so I've been working to articulate that. How do you think about space between letters and wordplay in poems like Broken Rice or Gay Cancer? I mean, one, I think it's okay just to like, admit that there can be a visual delight to reading. Um, and I think sometimes just like knowing that, I, like I, I felt really just a lot of permission just when I heard that I could literally do whatever I want because it was my page to be in charge of. Because I think I asked that same questions when I saw the work of folks like Douglas Kearney um, or Daryl Harris um, or Evie Shockley and a lot of poets who just play around with space in brilliant ways. I think I needed somebody just to tell me that like you can try it because I would I was so amazed that I was like I could never because I don't I don't have the credentials to be able to like play around with space on the page, and then somebody just said try and then I tried and it was cool for me it is just that sort of that other way to play not just to focus on the image or the syntax or the sound and the way that the words are happening but if like you are writing for people to like read visually in that way. Um, with their eyes, why not um, also approach the page as a canvas a little bit? So I guess like, yeah, so since like nobody really knows what a poem is, I think that just sort of becomes this thing of like, you know, yeah, why not like overuse dashes? Why not put tab things over you? You got a whole tab button on your computer, why not play with it? Um, why can't the entire poem be on the left side? Why can't it be shaped like a circle? Um, why can't you, um, like in Broken Rice, I'm just like really trying to like, I'm, to me, I think about that poem as being like chewed up, um, like it's being eaten. And so why can't I try to make that experience happen on the page? And Don't Call Us Dead, a lot of folks um, really were attracted to the end of my poem, um, Lidaniba Blood All Over, just because it becomes this huge mess on the page, um, becomes unreadable, just as repetition, my blood, my blood, his blood, his blood. And I think that you know, we can we can give people that moment of visual shock and pause the way you walk up to a painting and you're just standing off. And I think it's wonderful to like give at least a little bit of that or like to like try to mimic a little bit of that in poems too. I'll never forget like the first time I read As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. And he puts that, he puts that drawing of the casket in the middle of a paragraph and it's almost like a word. And I, I just was so stunned by it. So um, yeah, any way you can just like use face, um, image, text, whatever it may be, because why not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make sure that your line about the M dash is really quoted 
you know, from this podcast, <laughs> because I'm always accused of overusing them. You know, everything I write is, it's all breathless. It's all, you know, everyone's always dramatically pausing. And uh, <laughs> the person who criticizes me for overusing M dashes, I discovered the other day that this person did not know how to make an M dash in Microsoft. Oh, Word. Wow. So, I, so I taught them and then was like, see, let's see you stop using them now. And that, yeah, that They're sense so of play. In, they are. <laughs> and like that sense of play and freedom, I feel like, and also just like the space to take a breath and process mm -hmm. what you've read um, feels really valuable in your work. The last poem we wanted to ask you about was Old Confession and New, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. I love that poem. I, it's complexity, it's humor, it's honesty. You know, confessional poetry is a whole style of its own and has a Wikipedia entry and, you know, um, but real confessions are the kind of things that like in my experience, writers might talk about with their friends, hmm. the people they trust the most, but don't actually put into poetry. Um, I wondered if you could talk about that poem and maybe, maybe read it to us to close out. Yeah. Well, okay. I'll read it and then talk about it a little bit. Um, okay. Old confession and new. Sounds crazy, but it feels like truth. I'll tell you again. Maybe I practiced for it, auditioned even, applied. What the doctor told me was not news, was legend catching up to me, a blood whispering you were born for this. I tell you, I was not shocked, but confirmed. Enlisted? I am on the battlefield and I am the field and the battle and the casualty and the gun. My war is but a rumor and is not war. At the end of me, there is a boy I barely remember, barely ever knew saying, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. So now that it's an old fact, can it be useful? That which hasn't killed you yet can pay the rent if you play it right. Keep it really real. Many niggas getting paid off the cruelty of whites. Why not make the blood a business? Take it. Here's what happened to me. While you marvel at it, I'ma run to the store. My blood brings me closer to death. Talking about it has bought me new boots, a summer's worth of car notes, organic everything. And so yeah, that poem, like I like, I was trying to stop writing Don't Call Us Dead after it was already out. Um, and I think I always find out with books is that like, even like as you're finished it or you put the final draft on it, you're still in that same mode. And so there's always a couple of joints that come up at the very end that some get at it, but some are just like sort of getting the book out of your system. Um, and so I think for me, that first stanza really does just sort of once again, just sort of reanimate what half of Don't Call Us Dead is trying to be about. And then, yeah, then just try to move on to something else. I think I started thinking about money in poems. That's always been an uncomfortable topic for me in my life. Um, and as the source of probably my like easiest source of tears is just to like press the money button in my body. At least when I was young and very much in debt and sort of didn't feel like I had tools to be an adult with money. Um, and, you know, having like seen my parents go through debt and, you know, the only sort of messages about money I got to be like, save it. Um, I didn't know how to talk about it. So it felt new even in this poem, just to like admit that like dollars are in the world. And it's something I guess I didn't know how to talk about for a long time outside of maybe a couple of poems about sex work in my first book. So yeah, so that was, I think that's uh, just try what that's trying to signal is just doing the uncomfortable, I think you're right. Like the poem kind of that way, like ha is like sort of the first friend that you sort of whisper a thing to. 
Um, and it was very scary. And I think to whisper into a poem, they're like, Hey, I have money now. That's a hard thing to I think it's, I mean, it's a true thing. And, but I, I just, I, I respected and appreciated that. I, I, and I felt that it would have been scary. Yeah. It's always, scary. I mean, I don't know. I don't, and money is always still confusing for me. I have more of it than I ever have had. Um, I'm nowhere near rich. Um, but because I'm a person who didn't have money, who now does, I automatically feel like I have to give it all away and I'm comfortable having it. Um, and the world still sucks and like, you know, taxes and stuff. I don't know. Money is such a, a horrible, 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 horrible thing and gives me a lot of stress. And so, yeah, so that's why, yeah, I, I, I was much more comfortable, I think, being broke. <laughs> and being, having to say that like, yes, I'm thinking about buying a home, you know? Um, and I can like, think that um and like thanks to poetry for that in a weird way but yeah i don't know i don't know i need to i actually need to read more poets i, I want more poets to like sort of write about money i want to read like rich poems rich poems what would those be like <laughs> i don't know i just don't feel like rich people write about being rich and maybe i'd feel better about being newly middle class if i just like... <laughs> well i don't know about uh i don't know about poets because i don't hang out with as many poets as i hang out with fiction writers but fiction writers talk about money all the damn time they're Do like they? stockbrokers oh god yes come on not the ones i know oh really <laughs> I feel like they do and, 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 and talk about contracts and who got what contract and how much so-and-so got paid. I mean, that, that is the oh, thing so that doesn't like, Oh, you got a shitty contract. Congrats. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, sort of related to this, I'm, I'm curious and I wonder if I can just sneak this last question into the wire, but, you know, sort of connected to what you're talking about, there's been this sort of discourse around, um, you know, shelter in place about productivity and these articles that are like, don't worry about being productive. Um, you know, like if you are wearing your pajamas all day, it's cool. And, you know, don't give in to the, the capitalist machine that wants you to just port all your work and at home, like it's, there is no difference. And I was thinking about that and a lot of which I find really appealing. <laughs> and then some of it also, which seems like, well, it's kind of a privilege too, to sort of be like, well, I will be here and resist this question of productivity. And, you know, I, I can I'm able to and still survive. And so I was curious what you thought about that. And also just like, how is your writing life and your reading life in this moment that we're in? Yeah, uh, well, I guess for one, I guess like I both agree and disagree with that. I think like, do not feel the pressure to be productive. Like if you have the option, but like, if, and, like even if it's like kind of for me, like a mental health question. It's like, if you have the headspace to write, please do you know and like if that's something you want to do if it feels like it's going to bring you peace or like if you maybe maybe you are somebody who feels like you like finally have the time to like finally get to writing that thing that you've been wanting to write um but yeah i don't know like i feel like i don't want to be beat up like i feel like a lot of people are gonna beat themselves up like oh i don't have a novel um we've been like in the house for you know three four months at the end of this and yeah it's so dangerous i don't know because this is not I feel like it makes sense to feel uncreative. I felt really uncreative at the start of quarantine. Um, I just couldn't muster anything. I tried to write just even for, you know, just the therapeutic reasons of that. It feels like a thing, you know, to do and it helps you make sense of things. And I just, just poop um, came out. Um, and just like new, I just, was just like writing the news again. You know, I was just like, America sucks. Here's why today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
and yeah that might be a rich person poem that's a rich person poem (laughs) (laughs) um but I guess you know I uh I didn't start I feel like I kind of hit a new vein um in April with National Poetry Month popping up and just uh had a couple of friends that wanted to do a 30-30 and at that point we had already been um in quarantine I guess in Minnesota for or in shelter place for about two three weeks at that point and I finally felt like I had other things to think about besides the um, the madness and anxiety and newness of the situation, um, which which felt like an, I didn't want to write about COVID, you know? Um, I feel like I'll actually be able to, maybe something will come out of it. It feels like a pretty big moment in world history. And so I, you know, I, I don't, but I couldn't do it, especially as it was happening and I was adjusting to it. Um, I couldn't. And so, um, so that's my relationship to it. But I have been reading a lot more than I normally do. Uh, I've been trying to touch a couple of books every day. Uh, oh my God, where the heck is that? Um, I'm waiting a Spejos, which is Mears in the English translation by, um, Eduardo Galeano every morning. This is my partner's, the Spanish version that they're reading. I'm reading the English, um, Galliano, I haven't read Eduardo Galliano in forever. That is cool. Yeah. Uh, have you ever read this one? Um, no. It's so good. It's these like little like paragraph or two paragraph long descriptions of all these. He's like trying. It's trying to like build like the like history of everything kind of uh, through these little bits, and they're so poetic and beautiful. Um, and so he'll just give you like all of like here's how how beer was invented in one paragraph, and it knocks you out. Uh, but it's not the kind of book I can sit down and devour at one time. And I'm kind of uh, really uh, grateful for that at this time because I can only kind of read 10 a day because there's so much information in them. Um, so I'm kind of, yeah, I go in, I read like five or 10 and then I put it down for the next day. And then I've been reading a lot of um, collected works of people's work. Like I've been working my way through June Jordan and Lucille Clifton. Um, I think I'm going to try to do Derek Walcott uh, after I do those. So um I guess it's changed my reading in that way where instead of just like book, 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 I just want to do like deep dives into the greats mm-hmm. um, and really see what, what they're thinking about. So, yeah. You're such a fantastic reader and known for that also. And I'm wondering, um, I remember, I think the last time I was reading June Jordan, I was actually, June Jordan was reading, um, was reading her work. And so I could hear the recording and that was such a different experience. Are you, do you find yourself turning to audio at all or other forms of um, listening or reading? No, I don't really like the audiobooks too much to tell the truth. Don't tell my audiobooks that. Um, but <laughs> um, but yeah, so but I do watch a lot. Like I'm a, I, I watch movies. I, I love every form of TV, whether it be the trashiest of the trash or the best piece of television ever. Um, so I really got really into Shit's I finished Shit's Creek. I start and finish Shit's Creek. Um, and I am finishing up Steven's Universe. Um, I love Steven you know, Universe so much. <laughs> so good. Um, I want to go back and I think rewatch Sex and either like one of the HBO shows that I grew up loving. So like either Sex and the City, Oz, or Six Feet Under. Um, and I need to catch up on Westworld. So that's like my visual delight these days. Denez, we're so glad you could join us. Yeah, thank y'all so much. Thanks, Denez. And we will remind our listeners to pick up a copy of Homie, published by the great Twin Cities Press, Grey Wolf. And thanks again to the Loft Literary Center's terrific book festival, Wordplay, for making this interview possible. Don't forget to check out the rest of their programming. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This episode was produced by Andrea Tudhope. 
Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at LitHub's virtual book channel and on our own newly launched Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading to you and your friends.